finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up, and he went completely out of his mind. This is Dried Up Brain, and I'm Nate. And I'm Andrea. And this is a podcast where my mom, who is a librarian, and is also Andrea, there isn't a secret third person on this podcast that's a librarian and my mom, and me, who is Nate, and is a writer, sort of, read things and talk about them onto this podcast into the microphone that is in front of us. You can't see it because you're a listener. You don't have that power. Anyway, the thing that we read this week for this episode is Chronicle of a Death Foretold by Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So this novella was written in 1981 and it was originally published in Spanish and it was translated in 1982 by Gregory Rabassa, who's a well-known translator. And it was first published as a short story in Vanity Fair. And then after that, after the success of Garcia Marquez and his other writings, it was published as a novella, a standalone novella. Yes. Which is what we're reading. That is true. Well, that's what we read. That's what we read. We're not going to read it in real time on the podcast. That would be... I don't know. That'd probably be bad listening. It might be relaxing in like an ASMR way of just like pages turning and people go, hmm, interesting. Huh. Well, I think with my terrible language skills where I have sort of Americanize every foreign language, it would be terrible to hear me read something like oh, that. Oh, no, I was thinking we wouldn't even read it out loud. We would just be reading it in silence with the, it just being recorded. Oh, okay. Just the ambient sound. Of two people reading a book. I'm sure there's already a podcast of that at some point. Yeah, sure, probably. So, I guess we should summarize it. It's, it's a weird book to summarize. Well, do you want me to do it or you want to take a crack at I it? I can take a crack at it. Go ahead, and I'll chime in if you... So, the book is told non-linearly, or non-chronologically. It's... Well, we'll talk about the structure later, because it's pretty... I think... It's interesting on its own, and I think has become more interesting over time. That's a little teaser for something I'm going to say later. So the book basically opens with us learning that there is this dude named Santiago Nassar, and he died. Right, he and, was murdered. Well, I mean, yes. Yeah, I guess the very first line is, on the day they came to kill him, Santiago Nassar was something, wearing white, I forget, or dreamt about birds. He got up at 5.30 in the morning to wait for the boat the bishop was coming on. Okay, that's the opening line. Okay, so we find out that Santiago Nassar was killed, and then the narrator is a guy who is friends with Santiago Nassar, and he is working years after the fact to reconstruct the events of the night before Nassar was killed and the day that he was killed. And so the book kind of takes this, like onion skin structure where he kind of goes around and talks to different people and gets their take on the events and sort of zeroes in and explores what this person was doing and what this person was doing and over the course of it he constructs this narrative where um, this man named Bayardo San Roman came to their town this small town and was going to marry this woman named Angela Vicario she turned out to not be a virgin, which displeased him. He returned her to her parents on the night of their wedding. She uh, accused Santiago Nassar of taking her virginity, and then her brothers were compelled to murder Nassar. 
That's that's a good summary. I think it's also interesting to note that this story, which is supposedly told in a journalistic style, is a reflection of Garcia Marquez, who was in fact his main career was he was a journalist and he wrote a lot of investigative journalism, um, long form reporting about crimes and things that happened in Colombia. He's home country. Well, yeah. Well, if you notice the woman that the narrator proposes to has the same name as Marquez's wife and the narrator is never named. I asked you off the podcast if there was ever a point in the book where the narrator was name checked and he's not. So it's pretty easy to imagine that this is a fictionalized or semi-fictionalized version of Marquez standing in as the narrator of this story. I think that's interesting, and that also foreshadows something that I want to talk about later in the podcast about the connection between metafiction and magical realism. Sure, yeah. This, like, the process of reading this and piecing together, like, oh, this guy, who the narrator, like, trying to figure out who the narrator was and realizing that it is Marquez, it reminded me a lot of... On a previous episode of this podcast, we talked about Talon Ukbar Urbis Tertius by uh, Jorge Luis Borges. And I remember putting, piecing together that, like, the narrator of that is supposed to be him as well. And it's not just, like, a generic first-person narrator through the usage of, like, real people from his lives in the book. Oh, yeah. And I think even if... I mean, in the story. Even if you don't subscribe to the theory that... Garcia Marquez is the narrator. The narrator himself inserts himself in the story, even though he's telling it in the future, he's talking about something that happened in the past. He has integrated himself by making these comments and observations. He has inserted himself into the events of what happened the day before and the day of the murder. Yes. So it's also interesting to note, and I think it's an important plot point, that the brothers who are twins, who avenge the sister's honor when the news of her deflowering comes out, they're twins. Yeah, the Vicario brothers, Pablo and Pedro Vicario. Yes. So they're pig farmers who use their knives. Their plan is to use their pig butchering knives to murder Santiago. Yeah. So, so they wrap them in newspaper for some reason. I don't know why that's important. But they wrap their knives in newspaper and then they get them taken away by the colonel and then they get new knives that they also wrap in newspaper. I think it's a weird comment on how maybe the government like censors news reporting. I don't know. That's the only thing mm. I could think of because I was thinking about him as a reporter and then him having these difficulties when he was trying to investigate these political crimes and then this might be a commentary on that. I think maybe that might be the case. My take on it, if I had to venture a guess as to what the newspaper were for, was that it's like, um, a lot of this book is about like formality and tradition and like expectation. So it's like the newspapers are a formality. They're a very thin disguise over the knives because Everyone knows they're going to murder Santiago Nassar, and they know they have to murder Santiago Nassar, but they still have to put on the barest show that they're being sneaky about it, so the newspapers are just a very thin disguise for the knives. I think, I think part of the, yeah, I think that's true. Part of the problem with Santiago is he is morally ambiguous. Yeah. So you really don't have sympathy for him as a victim, because he 
there's a lot of the story. A lot of the story is about premeditation and this sort of like foretelling exactly like the title people know how he acts and they know how the brothers act and they know how the sister and they know what happened to the sister and then sort of there's this kind of village gossip about you know the brothers are coming to murder Santiago to avenge the sister's shame but the whole village knows that the sister is not a virgin and it seems like the only person who may not know this is the groom Bayardo, but he in fact may actually have known it and then just use that as an excuse not to go through with the wedding. I've made this comparison before uh, with other things, but I think that this is a horror story where the monster is like culture and society and tradition and expectation because... It's almost like the the portrait that Marquez paints of society in this is that it's like a big haunted house full of possessing spirits that compel you to do awful things that you might not necessarily want to do, but you just kind of have to do. This like specter of expectation drives the entire plot. So like Bayardo is expected to have a bride. He is expected to have a bride that is a virgin, uh... Angela is expected to, if not be a virgin, then to go through the motions of faking her virginity, even though everybody is, like, in on this. What's important is that you meet the expectation and perform the tradition. It's all all performative. And it's the same thing. Like, her ritual that she's supposed to do to fake losing her virginity on their wedding night is exactly the same as the ritual of the brothers wrapping the knives in the newspaper, even though it's ultimately meaningless and everyone actually knows the truth, you still are expected to go through the motions. And the one point in the story where a character bucks expectation and tries to do something like authentic and exercise their free will, the collective spirit of society and tradition and expectation destroys them and this town and Santiago Nassar because Angela makes the choice not to fake being a virgin on her wedding night and she tells the truth to Bayardo and she is she and everyone else in the story is brutally punished for that and her brothers are forced to become murderers because you can't one person like I think that's another big part of this story is that like the individual is ultimately meaningless against the collective forces of society no one person acting on their own can stop Santiago's murder no one person acting against tradition can stem the like rolling dynamo of destruction that that's already been started a thousand years ago when the first couple of peoples wrote down the first couple of laws. I think you're right because I think what Bayardo it the sister knows that she has to perform this ritual to fake that she's a virgin. In fact, her mother advises her on how to do it. And I think that I get the impression from him that he is more offended that she doesn't follow the tradition of fooling him. And that's what makes him upset. And I think part of the thing, when the gossip goes through the town, the foretelling part where everyone in the town knows that Santiago is going to be murdered by the brothers, they either don't tell Santiago or Santiago's family because they assume that someone had already told him because this is such big gossip. 
or half the town doesn't believe that they're going to go through with it. The same thing you were saying. It's almost like they're posturing this tradition of brothers who are offended about sisters and trying to avenge her, you know, reputation. But then Santiago also has a previous reputation of deflowering virgins. Yeah. So I think they kind of like, well, he's kind of a jerk anyway. He does this all the time. So, but the whole thing is very shocking when they realize that the brothers, even though they had spent the night drinking and they had this anxiety about committing this crime, they end up doing it anyway. Yeah. And that's what the the whole town is shocked more by the fact that they actually did it than the fact that they were going to do it. But yeah, it's like this thing. Everyone's just damned by their role. Santiago has taken up the role as the like rakish, the flower of virgin. So... The whether or not he was the one who took Angela's virginity, it doesn't matter because that's the role he plays, and that means that now that she has upset the balance, he has to play the new role of sacrifice. And like whether or not he actually did it is irrelevant, even though the narrator is very seems to be very concerned with whether or not Santiago actually did it. It ultimately doesn't matter. Yeah, and I think it's interesting that two-thirds of the story is about the wedding, which encompasses the whole town, and then the arrival the next day of the bishop, and then the premeditation of the murder, but there's very little description of what happens after the murder. They, he talks briefly about the brothers going to jail and about the ennui that they suffer while they're in jail. And then he talks a little bit about the sister and her 17 years of pining for Bayardo, who comes back after 17 years and takes up their marriage once again. So he doesn't really talk a lot about like the ramifications of what happened to this village after this crime occurred, even though the story is predominantly about what is going on in this village. I think we get like, I don't think he he digs too deeply into what happened, but he, he shows us a fair amount of it. Like when he describes what a lot of the people are like when he comes back years later and like how Santiago's mother has been consumed by guilt and is chewing peppercress seeds. And, you know, we he talks about how like for months after the murder, all anyone could talk about was the murder. I think it's interesting too. Like there's a little bit of like this sort of moral lax you know, attitude of the entire village. Like there's a part where one of the characters is supposed to run and tell Santiago that they're coming to murder him. And then he stops at the town hall and he checks the domino tournament schedule. And then he goes to visit his friend whose father needs help getting into bed. So by the time he arrives to warn him about the murder, he's already dead. Yeah. And it's kind of like, if if that was your main job was to warn someone that they were about to be assassinated... Why did you feel it was, like, not that important that you would go to check out the town hall schedule for the Dom and it was tormented? Yeah, well, I think there's, like, a political allegory here where it's, like, you can kind of slot in any um, obvious impending disaster that you want into the space of the murder of Santiago Nassar. So, you know, the rise of fascism or the inevitable destruction of the planet by climate change or whatever. It's, like... We all know that this awful thing is going to happen, but no individual person wants to take responsibility for it. And the people that do try to take responsibility for it are, and do something about it are powerless because they're just 
this one person and like the most of the people that we see who immediately and directly try to take action to stop the murder of Santiago and Sar, all they're really capable of doing or all they're willing to do is to appeal directly to these ultimately decrepit and powerless authority figures. And it's like, yeah, make sure you call your senator. I'm sure it'll help this time. Tell the colonel and he'll take away their knives and they'll just get more knives because in order to to actually stop the murder of Santiago Nassar, like, a bunch of people need to do stuff, and you need to take direct action and stop, you know, the brothers who, I, you know, in this allegory are, like, the fascists or the capitalists or whatever who are going to destroy everything. Well, I think you And everyone is, like, because the responsibility is spread out, everyone... F- no one feels the weight of it, and everyone feels absolved... From the responsibility. I think you're right, because I think this village is a microclimate for the political, you know, instability of Colombia at the time. And Garcia Marquez was a leftist, and he was a very outspoken, very politically active, very self-aware leftist. And a lot of his writing and his general base of writing, you can see this overall returning theme. There's lots of colonels. There's lots of, I mean, whether they be successful and important colonels or bumbling and effective colonels, that theme of that political stand-in who is the colonel is very important to him. Yeah, and we see in this, Colonel Apuente is a total fucking doofus who can't actually do anything. Well, yeah, he's almost like this cartoonish, like, bumbling police officer. Yeah. And then I think... Keystone Colonel. This whole thing about, like, this mysterious bishop, this is another reoccurring theme in a lot of his works. This reoccurring authority figure who's very nebulous that is going to show up or shows up or is, you know, threatening to show up. Like, the the bishop... The bishop is threatening to come. His visit is on its way. He's coming down on the boat, and there's all this debate about, is he going to come into the town? Is he not going to come into the town? And it's sort of like a lot of people are saying, like, okay, this is all going to be resolved when the bishop shows up. But then the bishop sort of just floats by on his boat and doesn't even interact with the town. Yeah, I think one of the clearest messages of the story is, like, these institutions of authority are... They don't, they can't really do anything and they will not save you. The church can't save you because the bishop just passes by on his boat and he doesn't even know what's going on. The law and the military can't save you because the colonel is completely impotent and powerless. And the mayor is also completely ineffectual to illustrate that the government doesn't have your back either. Yeah, I think it's true. And they're all seem to be ultimately powerless in the face of this like monster of tradition and culture. I think it was interesting, too, at the end of one of the little mini chapters, two men are talking and one says we should do something about this. And Luisa Santiago says, you know, we need to do something about it. And then their response is, don't bother yourself. It's already done. Mm-hmm. So, but I, let's go talk about the lawn, the nonlinear plot, this technique that he uses, because it's sort of. This sort of jumbled, nonlinear plot that he uses sort of gives it a more gossipy feel. And it kind of is sort of more like, almost like an oral history than it is like a journalistic interview. Yeah, I think what's really interesting to me about the structure now is, I imagine at the time, this was pretty 
like wild way to structure a novel and was fairly innovative and unique. But now there are like there are lots of things that are structured like this, except none of them or almost none of them are fictional novels. What they are are true crime serialized documentaries. Like this is structured almost exactly like something like serial or making a murder where it's like, here's this big event that we tell you about in the beginning. And then throughout the course of it, we sort of peel off in these other directions to like, let's talk to this person and find out their version of the events. And let's talk to this person and find out their version of the events in an effort to sort of slowly construct a more complete picture of the events. And what's interesting about this is it uses that structure to kind of illustrate that you can't really construct a clear picture of any given event because everybody's nobody's story is ever going to completely line up and like it's still going to end up being like confused and you're not at the end of the book the narrator still doesn't really understand why everything happened and why Santiago had to die even though everybody knew it was going to happen I think that that's a good observation I looked at this almost like at first I looked at it I, exactly like a true kind triumph I'm sorry, true crime narrative. <laughs> but then as I started to think about it, I started to think about it was almost like this concept called the inverted detective story, okay. where it's almost like the Maltese Falcon, where the crime is revealed in the beginning and then it slowly rolls back. But it's still linear in time. It's just reverse chronological. You, know. you mean, uh, look like a Columbo episode. Exactly. <laughs> Because, like, recently I was reading The Secret History by Donna Tartt, who wrote this novel in the 1992, and it was about um, a group of classics majors at a small New England college that um, there's a group of them that are complacent in a murder. And it starts out exactly like that. The murder happens at the very beginning of the book, and then slowly it rolls back to the sort of the motive for this yeah. Murder. But he does sort of a similar thing where, but his is compressed to a really short time span. It's only three years since the murder. So you kind of find out like, you find out what's happening before the murder and then you find out what happened after the murder. And then at the very end of the story, when the story is winding down, you get the actual description of the murder. I think it's interesting because like, this asks a different question than a lot of those. Like a Columbo story, that take on the inverted detective story, the question it asks is, uh, how are we going to catch this guy? It's like, what you, you already know who did the murder and how. All that really matters is, how is Columbo going to catch him? Exactly. And then a lot of other ones, it's like, you know... Who did the murder? But the question is, like, why? Well, and this one, the question isn't, like, we know who did the murder and we know why. But the question is, how did this happen? Exactly. Not and in, like, a what, how did the murder get committed? But, like, how did we let this happen? Exactly. And I think that's what the whole, that's why when you start to realize that the whole town in some way is complacent and is culpable in this murder... Because of the actions that they perform and this way that they hold on to these sort of cultural stereotypes. Mm -hmm. 
And I think that's sort of interesting because the whole premise of the wedding is the whole town is involved because it's a very traditional wedding where the whole town is involved and a wedding is an event that disrupts the normal workflow of life. And, you know, this thing happens where everyone has to be involved. I mean, the town is so involved that even the house is too big, so they have to take over another house. And the wedding goes on for like nearly 48 hours. And in fact, Santiago, the one of the reasons why the murder is delayed is because Santiago keeps visiting different people in celebration of this wedding. Mm-hmm. So he doesn't end up going home until right before he gets murdered. Yeah, yeah. But I think I had mentioned in the previous podcast at the very end that uh, Garcia Marquez was known for his magical realism. And then as I was reading this, I thought to myself, oh, this really doesn't have a lot to do with magical realism. But there are some sort of subtle notes of magical realism in this. Yeah, I mean, there's a prophetic dream uh, that Santiago has. Well, that may or may not be prophetic. And his mother is known, like, around the town as a interpreter of dreams. And so there's this, like, prophecy element, but that's, like, a very light touch of magical realism. That's pretty far afield from, like, you know, the old man with wings or whatever, people floating into the air and all this shit that happens in his other stories. Yeah, and I think if you interpret magical realism into sort of the very basic definition of it is that it's a narrative fiction that brings elements of the fantastical into a realistic setting, then it does have more magical realism. Not as much as his later works will have, but it does have sort of some elements. One of the things that stuck with me was the part where the wife, where she wasn't in love with Bayardo until he rejected her. And then she ends up pining for him and writing him these love letters for 17 years. And then on the day that he returns, she senses that he returns, but he returns and he has a big suitcase filled with the letters, but he hasn't read any of them. Mm -hmm. But he still at some point senses her love for him and returns. Yeah. And I think that another way to read that is like, now that this whole thing has happened, she can love him because she doesn't have to love him anymore now she's freed from the expectation of loving him she can choose to do it and like i don't know i don't know if that's good or not but i I think that's what's supposed to be going on there i think also too for the brothers when they when he recaps them after they've been convicted of the crime and they serve the time in jail they are also freed of the expectations of what they should become because neither one of them go back to being pig farmers. Also, they just don't have diarrhea anymore. Well, that the that's the purging of the traditional roles, I think, that they have to play. Yeah, he gets that when he goes into the military. He becomes indoctrinated into the, these rigid rules and structure that bind his life. And now that he's, like, ex- fulfilled his duty and committed this murder and completely lost his freedom by going into the prison, he's, like... Freed from that, and he doesn't have diarrhea anymore. <laughs> yeah, that's kind of like... But that's another reoccurring theme, that sort of purging. There's always, in Garcia Marquez, there's always a character that has a nearly fatal illness, or a wasting disease, or is recovering from some catastrophic illness. I mean, in fact, one of his most popular books is uh, 
Love, Love in the Time thing. of Cholera. Yeah. And there's always that sort of, that's one of the elements or one of the symbolic elements that he uses quite often. Yeah. It's also, I referenced a very old man with enormous wings, but that also has like a big element of like wasting disease and filth and like decay happening over time. Yeah. And I think, I mean, all of his stories have this va- balance. So you have this sort of episode where you, you know, you have these two men suffering from this catastrophic illness that nearly kills them. And then on the flip side, you have the sister who in her solitude takes up this embroidery and becomes a fantastic embroiderer. And she like has a, her own independent life that she got because she was rejected by her husband on her wedding day. You know what? I, I realized I fucked up because I said, oh, he, he's cured of his diarrhea and he's free from tradition. But he goes back into the army and just disappears. He becomes completely subsumed by the role after that. I don't know if that's like supposed to be him rejecting freedom or not, but I think my, my read on the dissipation of his diarrhea was wrong. I think he leaves his cultural expectations of his role as a brother, as a butcher, as a traditional son in this village. And after the murder, he is free to walk away from that and to take up a life that he wants. He chooses to take up a more structured life Mm -hmm. because he, I guess he's predisposed to that. The other brother, I forget what happened to him. Well, so their father was a goldsmith who lost his eyesight from doing very fine work, right? Like, do, like right. so that's why they're, like, poor. And I guess that's why they have to be pig butchers? I don't know. After they're released from prison, I can't remember which one, Pedro or Pablo. or pa- Wait, is it Pablo or Paulo? One of them becomes a soldier, but the other one becomes a goldsmith. Oh, okay. So he takes up a more artistic... But, but he also retakes his father's role and, like... I, I think you're right. Like, they stop being brothers. One becomes completely a soldier and disappears, and the other one becomes the father, because the father, I think, dies while they're in prison. But I think even for the sister, even though she's rejected by her husband, and she's sort of supposedly shunned by society because of this sort of embarrassment that she caused to her husband and her family, she ends up having a life that's probably more free and creative than she would have had if she would have stayed with her husband. Well, yeah, it's when the narrator goes to visit her, he's like, oh, you know, she's so smart and witty, and, like, I don't even... It doesn't even seem like she's the same person anymore. Yeah, so I kind of... It's almost like this murder has served to set a lot of people free from their cultural expectations. Bayardo, he leaves. He leaves the town. He yeah. doesn't... So even though he has a responsibility to his new wife and his cultural responsibility as a married man, he just leaves. I don't know what to make of it, but he almost suffers a symbolic death because he refuses, he he like refuses to leave the house he bought. And then I think the mayor and the priest come to visit him and he's like dying of alcohol poisoning and they treat him. And then his family comes and they're in mourning clothes and they, carry him out in a cart, and then he's just gone, and nobody sees him until he shows back up with all the letters. I think it's almost like he... That's his punishment for what he does. Mm -hmm. So he makes this deal with the... He asks his wife which house is the best house in the town, and she says it's this old house, this widow 
Witterward lives in. And he goes to talk to him and he says, no, I'm not going to sell the house. So then he bullies the man into selling the house, which is seen as sort of like a shitty thing to do. But then he only spends one night in the house and then his whole life is completely unraveled. Okay. So it's almost like his comeuppance for like bullying this old happily married widower who was living in this house trying to remember his wife. Oh, that's the other magical realist part. There's a fucking ghost in this story. Yes. Who like shows up and talks and like does stuff. The ghost of the the widow's wife turns out she's been removing her stuff from the house and they have a seance and she's like, yeah, I did that. That was me. Yeah. And I think like also like there's this sort of, it's not really magical realism, but this is sort of nod to romantic literature when the investigator is talking to and he's reading the folios from the judge and he sees these sort of flowery romantic notes that the judge is putting into the commentary when he's reviewing the interviews while he's judging this case. He also has to go on like a quest and retrieve those notes from a partially flooded palace of judgment. Yes. So I think it's like, it's almost like a fledgling attempt at what will flower into full-on magical realism from Garcia Marquez. I think he was already writing some more explicitly magical realist stuff by this point. Yeah, this I think it, after this is when he writes 100 Years of Solitude, which becomes his most popular work. Yeah, that's um, it's also his best one. That's my favorite. No, 100 Years of Solitude was written in 1967. <laughs> oh, really? This is one of his... Yeah, this is a later work of his. The next thing he, the next major thing he does after this is the general in his labyrinth. I think what's confusing. Or no, the next thing he does after this is Love in the Time of Cholera. Okay, which that's is, what I think what you were thinking of. Yes, and I think that's his most popular known work in the English language. Probably, literature. I mean, it had that movie with um, what's his face. I Javier think what's Bardem. confusing a lot about his work is that because it's translated from his native language you don't always get like a linear chronological release of his works yeah i think that's like a thing where he you know he was writing a lot in the 60s you know and maybe even earlier than that i don't know Well, he was a reporter in the 50s but like i think the the point where he really became a phenomenon in the western world was probably was in the 80s people fucking loved magical realism in the 80s yeah yeah, that was that was a huge. I think that was the first exposure because I guess Latin American magical realism is sort of this this genesis of this genre, which has now branched out and been incorporated. But I think at the time in the seventies and the eighties, most of the magical realism, most of the authors at that time, people like Isabel Allende, they were um, they were writing in Spanish language novels and things like that and it was slowly being interpreted and translated and brought into sort of mass culture when love in the time of cholera came out it was a huge bestseller it was like a phenomenon like it sort of like it was like one of those things where it just sort of swept through like popular culture and everybody was reading it it was a you know it was like of the moment the hot read yeah yeah and I think that's one of the things that's kind of like weird about him is that his breakout novel, his English language novel, came so late in his career. Yeah, but at least it happened before he died. Yeah, that's true. I remember when he died. I was very sad. Yeah. 
Uh, what was I going to say? Can we talk about the character of Santiago Nassar? I'm going to start with the, the big, the big boy, uh, you know, classroom discussion question. Is he a Christ figure? Because I don't know. There's the thing where they stab him and they, he doesn't bleed, which that's like a very Jesus-y thing. Yeah. And, and he I, is like this guy, like, he has to die. In the same way, like, Jesus knows about his death. If you read the Gospels, he's constantly trying to drop hints to the apostles, like, hey, homies, I'm going to die. And they're like, well, we don't get it. We're the dumbest people on earth. Why do you hang out with us, Jesus? I think he could be. I could also, in my mind, see him as a symbol of the truth being murdered. Because I think, like, in Garcia Marquez's interpretation of the truth, it's not 100% pure and virginal and clean. Like, Santiago is sort of a dirty character. He's kind of a jerk. He's morally ambiguous. He So his sort of reflection of what the truth is is kind of, like, a little muddied. But I think, like, he could be a Christ figure because there is the sort of part where he, after he's disemboweled, he stumbles through the town and he's still interacting with people. And even to the point where he falls down and there's a really gruesome depiction where he gets up and brushes off the dust from his entrails and then continues flopping around. Because he has to go to the back of his house. Because he can't... His mother won't let him in because Mm. if she lets him in, then she has to acknowledge that he has been murdered. Yeah, yeah. He's also, he's dressed in all white. Like, that's a point. Like, I'm wondering, maybe the idea is, like, like I was talking about, oh, everybody has to play this role, and one of the brothers becomes the father, and blah, 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 blah. You know, all that dumb shit I said. Like, he kind of, maybe, he's he is a Christ figure in that he ends up playing the role of Christ. He dresses in the all white. And, like, even though he is a shitty dude, in this moment, in this ritual, he is Christ. I think you're right, embodied. because... Also, if you see the bishop as maybe God, mm-hmm. he, Santiago, something is happening to Santiago in the real world, and there's this this sort of expectation that the bishop is going to come. And Santiago's goal is he's going to go to the harbor or to the dock, and he's going to meet the bishop. And then the bishop, and, and the whole town is like, is the bishop coming? Is the bishop coming? And then a lot of people are like, well, Santiago's not here. He's going to meet the bishop. So if the bishop is the stand-in for God, then Santiago can be Jesus, and he never comes. Yeah. So if Santiago would have went to the dock to meet the bishop, he would not have been murdered. Yeah, yeah. And then in this interpretation, the narrator becomes, you know, he becomes like, one of the apostles or Mark or John or whatever. And the book becomes the gospel of Santiago Nassar, but it doesn't actually contain anything he actually says. And it's entirely about his death, which I could see then being a commentary on Christian religion as this kind of death cult that is way more concerned with the death and destruction and torturing of their savior than they are with anything he actually did or said. But I think it's interesting because technically his death is never actually foretold. His mother has a dream and he has a dream. But what we know about the murder is that someone said, it's almost like a telephone. Like someone says, oh, the Pablo and Pedro are going to murder, are going to avenge the event and kill Santiago. So it gets spread all gossip wide through the town. 
But, I mean, so I think there's two two moments where the death might be foretold. One is he has the dream about birds and about trees. And one of those is good and one of those is bad. And his mother ignores the bad one and focuses on the good one, ignoring a possible foretelling of his death. There's also the thing where, and this is another ambiguous thing where it's unclear if this is the truth or not, but Davina Floor, the daughter of his servant, has like a vision of him going up to his room. Which is why she thinks he's already there, supposedly thinks he's already there, when he's actually out on the town getting murdered. Yeah, because there's this huge complication about the fact that his door is actually locked Yeah, for his bedroom. But it turns out that he went through his mother's bedroom. And I think this is also another thing. There's always this sort of element in Garcia Marquez's works about the sort of weird circular like relationship between a mother and her son yeah yeah so she he either always has a mother who is pining for her wayward son or a very loyal you know compliant son but there's always a sort of strong issue a lot of his work also has to do with sort of female roles and yeah. as as mostly as they pertain to men well yeah the most so. active character besides the brothers well no the most active characters, the only ones who make actual decisions that aren't guided by expectation and tradition are women in this story. There's Angela who makes the decision not to hide her lost virginity. And then there's, is it Clotilda Armente? Who's the first person that's like, I got to warn people about Santiago. And she's the one that tells the colonel, right? Right. Like, and she is, I think that I could be getting it wrong, but there's a character who's a woman who bucks the expectation that she will just allow Santiago to get murdered because of her connection to the Vicario family and makes the active decision to go try and warn people, which ultimately ends up not working because she's just the one person and she doesn't. Also, I think there's a point where when the sister returns home, the mother is like, I told you what to do and you didn't do it. And now look what's going to happen. This guy's going to be murdered. Yeah. But there's re- there's never really any clear connection between Santiago and the sister. Yeah. And that's the whole thing. The only thing that makes him guilty in the minds of the villagers is that he, in the, in the past, has deflowered young, unexpected virgins. And he has also made comments about how he is happy to do those things. I mean, he's literally planning on doing it to Davina, right. which is one of those things that complicates him as like a Christ figure and a victim because his interaction with her is super gross and awful. He grabs her by the wrist and says he's going to tame her, and then his her mother has to intervene. That was also another thing. I think that scene is really interesting as far as it pertains to Santiago's character. It's because, like, the, the mother, who had been previously seduced by Santiago's father and was now working as a servant for his family, she's, like, gutting rabbits. And Santiago is disgusted by the barbarism he perceives in her uh, butchering of the rabbits, which obviously is like foreshadowing because he's going to get literally killed by butchers with butcher knives later. Yes. And that it's like gross and bloody and then he gets cut and he doesn't bleed. Anyway, he the thing that he says to her is pretending it's a person. And we know that Santiago has like killed animals and gone hunting and stuff. And it's like, does the way that he steals himself for killing animals... Is it by pretending they're people? And, like, what does that say about him as a person and his relationships to other people? Like, 
does he view people and animals as the same thing? And then he it paints him as this kind of predator. And then it complicates the, like, whether or not it was a good thing that he was murdered at the end. But I think a lot of, a lot of times in magical realism, animals and humans are interchangeable. Uh, yeah, well, and because think- it's like a lot of magical realism is heavily influenced by fables. Some people even call it fabulism. Right. Yeah, and I think that's the, I mean, this whole kind of influence about the sort of cultural stories that Garcia Marquez might have grown up hearing about these sort of like Aesop type fables would have influenced him in this depiction. I think it's interesting too because when the brothers do murder him, and at one point, the brother says, aim for the heart, and he stabs him under the armpit. And then he says, the narrator says, well, he did that because that's where the heart is in a pig. Mm. So he's kind of like, he himself is also doing the same thing that Santiago does. Well, it's like he, the reverse. Yes. They kill a human by pretending they're an animal, whereas Santiago is getting okay with killing animals by pretending that they are humans. Yeah, and I think it's interesting because their choice of weapon is their butcher knives that they specifically... And it's very clear, and it's mentioned many times, that they are, in fact, pig farmers, not any other kind of farmers. So they're used to handling this type of livestock, and that's what they end up doing. But it's an interesting, like, there's, like, a weird structure of guilt-absolving tactics, because... They become okay with killing Santiago by imagining him as a pig. And they become okay with killing pigs by imagining that they're flowers, because that's a thing that's brought up at some point, Right? is they name the pigs, but they name them after flowers and not with people or animal names. Yeah. And I think it's true the same thing with the judge, because the brothers are so sad and such sorry prisoners they're sort of sad sacks and they're kind of depressed because of the being in prison and what they have done that the judge doesn't feel bad just letting them sit there for three years and then finally letting them go so they don't even even within the story it's not very clear that they're sentenced to a you know a punishment and they complete that punishment and they're let go they sort of just sort of linger in this sort of purgatory between like being in jail and being convicted of a crime. Yeah, I mean, it's another, like, it's another formality thing. Like, uh, we have to at least pretend to imprison them because, you know, they did this murder, even though we all knew they were going to do it and they they had to do it by the rules that are, you know, set out by the society we're all living in. Yeah, and I think that, I mean, I think that's one of the key concepts of magical realism. We were talking a little bit about other authors that employ techniques that are related to Garcia Marquez's techniques with the magical realism. And one of the things that we were talking about was Louise Erdrich. And I Mm -hmm. think she does a really great job of taking, she talks about the Ojibwe culture and then she writes these stories that are set in this, it's almost like the equivalent of Marquez's village, this Ojibwe reservation where people are, confined and also at the same time free from the social constructs of greater society within this reservation culture and like her use of magical realism as it relates to native american culture is very similar to the way that garcia marquez uses the culture of the colombian history into his narratives 
Yeah, I don't really think she... That's true. She has a much more positive outlook on culture as a concept. Whereas, like, in this, and I think in some of Marquez's other works, you know, culture is like a prison that, destro- that like, destroys you and squeezes your life out. Whereas, like, in Louise Erdrich's work, sometimes, you're, you know, connecting with your culture and your history a lot of times is, like, a good thing that's ultimately beneficial for the characters. And sometimes, you know, these expectations fuck people up, but it's a more... Um, complicated structure than Marquez. I think you're right, but I think the, what the culture that I was talking about that sort of restricts Louis Erdrich's characters is not the Ojibwe yeah. nation. It is the greater Anglo culture that surrounds their reservation. I mean, there's a little bit in some of the stories, like um, like in the Red Convertible and stuff. There's some no, no, no. Is I was it- thinking mostly about like the. You know the school, the yeah, boarding yeah. schools, and things like that. Oh yeah, no, it's definitely like the the sort of French Canadian sort of trapper culture that she brings into some of her stories. I mean, the the white Catholic culture is generally portrayed as being kind of no, I don't know. Like for some people, it works, but that that is the more antagonistic cultural force, and the Ojibwe culture is generally more positive. But there is. I can't remember which story it is. I don't think it's the Red Convertible, but it's the other story about the one brother from the Red Convertible. Well, that's what I was thinking. And his relationship with, like, the tribal council. Like, that delves a little bit into the, like, the rigid structures of culture and how, like, you know, culture builds itself up into this rigid force as a way to help itself survive, but then that can cause problems down the line in other areas where flexibility would be more desirable. I was thinking... About that, the two brothers. But I was mostly thinking about, and I think it's love medicine, about the one brother who goes to Vietnam. That's the one, that's what I'm talking about. Right, but I think like his experience of going into the army and his experience of being in the greater world in the context of Vietnam sort of showed him the sort of safety that the reservation gave him and his cultural, like, um, expectations gave him sort of a form to live in so that when he's out in the freer world, it's harder for him to process things. I mean, he obviously has a bad time in Vietnam and he comes back. And that's an, another whole sort of part where she talks about war and the effect on people in general. But yeah, I mean, and that's another story that ends with one of the brothers just completely disappearing. Like that's the end of the Red Convertible is he goes under the water and he's just right. gone. And they never see him again. But I was thinking sort of broadly about um, writers that were really good examples of magical realism and what made them really good writers. And I sort of made this connection that the people that I thought about who were really good at magical realism came from a culture where they had a really strong um, cultural mythology that they dealt with. And I thought about Louise Erdrich and her Ojibwe. Mm-hmm. And then I was also thinking a lot about like Salomon Rushdie. Salomon Rushdie. And I was thinking about like his, specifically his novel Midnight's Children, which sort of draws a lot on like the Indian culture, their religion, the goddesses and gods. And I think like having that strong cultural identity makes it easier for people who write in magical realism to draw on symbols that they can bring into the real world and use as examples. And I think reading those and not having that strong cultural background makes it easier for someone to 
believe in the sort of the vividness of magical realism. Sure. As opposed to just thinking of it as like a fantasy novel. I'm surprised you didn't bring up Toni Morrison. Yeah, That's definitely. That's I was thinking of the whole time you were saying that. But I feel like... The greatest American writer of all time. Because I think of someone like Toni Morrison and especially someone like Alice Hoffman where they're American writers and their sort of cultural influence is sort of pop culture mm-hmm. and sort of fairy tales and fables that come from other cultures. Yeah. But I was surprised because I, I thought you would mention something about like comic books and superheroes because to me that really has a lot to do with like magical realism because you're literally taking a person who has magical powers and putting them in the city. Yeah, but it's it's like I think some some superhero if you just picked up a like a random Superman comic, it might read like magical realism to you because you're just like. Well, there's this guy who can fly, and everyone is just okay with that, and this is just what he does, and he's here, and he's... Like, especially if you picked up one from, like, the 60s, and you're like, okay, I guess he's friends with this reporter, and they're, like, disguising themselves as beatniks, and okay, this is the story. But I think the problem is, like, lots of other superhero comics, especially more modern ones, are very concerned with telling you how and why things are the way they are, and they feel this need to explain things that you don't really that's kind of antithetical to magical realism i think you're right maybe maybe i have just proven my own point because i think part of what makes magic realism work is that the characters in the story don't think there's anything wrong with these fantastical things happening they just accept them as part of their lives and how their lives work the way i've always understood it is that the magical or fantastical elements are treated as being just as real as the other elements Whereas in a lot of other fantastical literature, there is this need to make the fantastical elements real rather than just treating them like they already are real. And I think that's what turns something that's on the fence of being magical realism and straight up fantasy. Yeah. And I think that's the key. And that's what I was thinking about. I was recently reading Practical Magic by Alice Hoffman, Mm -hmm. which was written in 1995, one of her early best known books. Recently, in 2017, she wrote a prequel to that novel called The Rules of Magic. So Practical Magic is about two sisters that are witches that live in this New England town. And, you know, they they, they come from a family, a cursed family of women that have magical um, skills. Sure. So it's pretty clear that this is sort of almost like a fantasy novel. They're very clearly witches are identified. But when she writes the rules of magic, it and she writes the backstory of the ants who take in the witches from practical magic, you realize that that family, to them, the weird and magical parts, the, the skills that they have, they don't see them as witchcraft. They see them as just their natural part of their lives. So they're sensitive, they can sense things, and they have these skills, they can find things. Like every woman has a special skill but to her, she's not a witch. She's, that's just the way their family is. So I think like she sort of starts to lean more into the practical, from practical magic to this new book, The Rules of Magic. She sort of acknowledges that this is more magical realism and less fantasy. Yeah, the way I always thought about it is like if you imagine a fantasy story will have a werewolf in it. And they'll feel the need to be like, ah, werewolves exist because... A greedy king was cursed by a silver piece he got from the fairy king. 
Whereas a magical realist story would be like, that's my neighbor Doug. He's a meter maid and also he's a werewolf. And like, that's it. <laughs> I think it's, yeah. I think that's, I mean, there's like, you know, you can have a character that can, like Amy Bender has a short story. Oh, she has a book. The Sadness of Lemon Cake, I think it's called, mm -hmm. where the girl's talent is when she... Peculiar. I think it's like the peculiar or particular sadness of yes, lemon cake. But I think it might be the particular sadness of lemon cake. But it's interesting because that sort of is just like, it's almost like a narrative fiction. And then the character in the story, when she eats the food that people make, she can sense their feelings. And I think like that's a perfect example of like, an element of magical realism. Sure, yeah. Where it's just a regular world and her mom makes a cake and she wakes up one day, you know, something happens in her life and she can taste her mother's sadness in this cake. Where do you think that somebody like George Saunders fits into this? Where, like, in Civil War Land in Bad Decline, he's like, yeah, I work at a, a amusement park and, of course, there's a ghost there because it was built on a Civil War burial ground. And, like... How does that feel? I feel like, in my mind, George Saunders is not a magical realist, but he is savvy as a writer mm -hmm. to take elements and bring them in. Yeah, I don't, I don't think all or even most of his stuff would fall into magical realism, but I think a fair amount of it, you know, does. I think he also... Hmm. Okay, so just I, for okay. a quick pause... The book is called The Particular Sadness of Lemon Cake and was written in 2010 by Amy Bender. Okay. So that's just to sort of get back to that. Is that a, that's a novel or a collection of short stories? I think that's a novel. I, I remember it just being the one story. Okay. I've read a collection, I've read a collection of her short stories, but I don't think I've read that one. She's also interesting because I think she would fall more into magical realism because she's very interested in fables and the grim fairy tales and a lot of her stories have like a really fantastical element. Yeah. So I was just like, I think that some of what George Saunders writes is magical realism, but I think some of it is a thing, a term I've just come up with, which is science fictional realism, which is like, there are these stories that I think a lot of more literary writers will write which have a science fictional element. Like the Semplica Girls is a good example of this. Or like that one Saunders story about the guy who runs the VR kiosk at the mall. Where it's like, here's this wild science fictional concept. But mostly this is just a story about a sad guy who has to deal with this thing. And we're not super... It's, it's more concerned with the mechanics and the implications of it than a lot of magical realist stuff is concerned with their... The implications of their magical elements, but it's has a very similar attitude towards this thing that does not exist in the real world that does exist in the world of this story. Yeah, and I think that's true. I think like it's almost like magical realism is a literary technique that if you're savvy enough, you can apply in a sophisticated way. And George Saunders is a very technical writer. So he can use different literary devices in successful ways. Sure, sure. I'm sure if he wrote a werewolf story, it would it would almost still be this metafiction realist narrative, but it would have elements of the supernatural. It would be about a guy who's a actual werewolf, but he works in an amusement park where he has to dress up in a werewolf mascot costume. 
And then also he would be for 25 years working on his PhD. Yeah, yeah. So there would always be that sort of mundane component of this poor werewolf slash, you know, worker's life. So are you reading anything good? Am I reading anything good? I've been rereading a bunch of Elmore Leonard stuff because I want to write something that feels like his stuff. So that's been taking up most of my my reading time for stuff that's not for the podcast. I just I read a couple short stories again, and I just started reading Get Shorty for the second time. Okay. Which just just because that was the one, like my my favorite. If you haven't read any Elmore Leonard and you want to, he's one of my favorite writers. I, again, now you know three of my favorite writers just from this episode. <laughs> um, my favorite thing that he's written, and a really good intro to him is Tishomingo Blues. Which is like this weird story about a uh, champion high diver who goes around the country doing high diving shows. And he ends up at this hotel and there's this like cape crime caper that's going to happen that's based around a Civil War reenactment. It's, uh, it's real good. I'm trying to think of which M- Elmore Leonard book that I had read. I know I read one for he won an Edgar Award for one of him. You wanted it. Hmm. I don't know. I don't know which one that, that would have been. Yeah, I have to look it up. Well, I've been leaning very hard into my middle-aged lady reading group. So this month alone, I finished Clock Dance by Ann Tyler, which was okay. Sort of her formulaic um, story about a middle-aged lady who is unhappy with her life and takes up with a bunch of um, oddball characters. This This one is about a woman who flies to Arizona to take care of her son who is very distant and does not pay attention to her. Her ex, his ex-girlfriend who was shot in the leg, he takes up, she goes there. She's called there because there's no one to take care of her young child. She's a single mother. So she goes there and she falls in love with the quirkiness of Baltimore and with this oddball group of people that she meets in this Baltimore neighborhood. That's kind of like all of, and Tyler's books are like that. The uh, the one that you want to edit award for is La Brava. Yes. Which is about a Secret Service agent who becomes a bodyguard to a movie star? Is that what that one's about? I don't remember. That's one of the Hollywood ones, I'm pretty sure. I was thinking it was the one where he was in Florida and he was a detective and he wore a Hawaiian shirt, but then I might just be thinking about any TV show from the 1980s. Yeah. Do you, know, do you know the reason why Magnum P.I. is set in in uh, Hawaii? Why? It's because they needed to film another show using the production offices they built for Hawaii Five O in order to justify the cost of it. That would make sense. Because it was originally supposed to be set in California. Because right? there's really no reason for him to be in Hawaii. Yeah, no, I th- I th- I'm pretty sure La Brava is about a Secret Service agent and a movie star. Yeah, well, okay, it it is about the Secret Service agent who appears in other books. This one is yeah, set in South Miami Beach. Oh, okay. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, this is the one where he's at. He stays at a hotel and he meets this sort of aging beauty queen and Cuban go-go dance. There's lots of, you know, he's he's good at like sort of character vignettes and he has all these sort of quirky characters yeah yeah yeah. so i also read times convert by deborah harkness who is hugely popular for her 
discovery of which is the All Souls trilogy. She's your personal friend, right? Yes, I, I did in fact meet her at a work event and I hugged her, which is very out of character for me. But yeah. not for her because apparently she's a big hugger. Mm. So I met her and I did an interview with her and we talked a little bit about libraries. She's a very, she's a um, PhD historian of science who's a professor. She's very strong advocate of libraries and research. So it was very nice to meet her. She's a very nice person. Her books are sort of kind of outrageous. They're about vampires and witches, the sort of Anne Rice sort of romantic supernatural world where a witch falls in love with a vampire and they have children and dot, dot, dot. This book (laughs) is sort of outside of that trilogy. It's the story of one of the vampires who was made a vampire during the American Revolution. And it's his story about being a vampire in the American Revolution and then moving up towards the French Revolution and current times. Okay, so two things. One, I think the reason... They had a convention, yes. a fan convention for a book series at your library, or well, at the institute where your library is located, and you work in a scientific history library with a focus on alchemy and early chemistry, right. and that's is- a big part of those books. Yes, and so how I ended up meeting her was during this conference, which they call the All Souls Con, which I'm sure if you even have basic Google skills, you'll figure it out. We, our library did an outreach event on the two days that the conference was taking place and we got to interact with the fans and we got to interact with Deborah and we got to... Oh, we were on a first name basis? Yes. Well, she did tell us to call her Deb. So we're (laughs) even at even an abbreviated first name basis. Um, She had come to our institution previously because she is an Elizabethan history of science scholar. So she had done events before. So what we did was we took the books that were mentioned in the first three books, which are about alchemy and Ashmole and these missing manuscripts. We displayed those actual printed books during the event. So as librarians, we got to meet the fans who were super fanatic about these books and about the details of the books. So they were very excited to to meet us and to see our copy of our Flamels and our Ashmoles and things like that. Okay, cool. And so the other thing I wanted to ask you, so we obviously, in a previous episode, we had a very long discussion about vampires. Where do the vampires in this fit on that sort of vampire metaphor scale that we were talking about? These vampires are very romantic vampires. They're Mm -hmm. adults versions of the twilight vampires okay so they're not like bloodthirsty monsters they're like sophisticated time traveling um dilettantes that you know instead of drinking blood they can enjoy you know deep dark red burgundy wines and that can sustain them with dark chocolate so they can there's a way for them not to be like Guillermo del Toro, like, face-articulating beasts that devour humans. Wow, There's, this super is a book for mi- yes. middle-aged women. There's vampires that survive on red wine and dark chocolate? Yes. What? And, and then Diana, in the in the All Souls, just a quick premise, Diana is a witch who is also a researcher. She's a historian who's researching um, this missing Ashmole manuscript, and she takes up with Matthew, who is a vampire who was created before the Crusades. Okay. And he is sort of a knight, a former knight that is now 
a vampire who's also a genetic researcher. So there's this component of genetic research. Okay. So they take up and they have all these adventures. And she is a type of witch that can tr- that can weave, they call it, where she can um, she travel is. through time. And she goes. they go back to the Elizabethan times and they interact with all these historical figures from the Eliz- Elizabethan times. Does she draw her uh, magic powers from tasteful shawls and movies with Colin Firth in them? It absolutely should be. So this book is about... So this whole thing about if you have a vampire... If you're a vampire and you create another vampire, then you become that vampire's parent. Sure, that's what a lot of vampire stuff. So Matthew, who is married to Diana, and they have these two... They somehow biologically make two children that are twins. One's a vampire and one's a witch. But that's... (laughs) That's neither here nor there. His son is... The son is Marcus that is created during the colonial times. Okay. And the book, and Deborah Harkness is from, her family is from Philadelphia. Wait, so the witch so, has a vampire stepson who's from the colonial yes, era? Yes, So the book is set in and near Philadelphia, and it talks a lot about okay. what was going on in, in the colonial period at that time, and the war, and different things like that. Why do you, you got to tell me that? Now I can't dunk on it, because it's involves philly i'm obligated by my culture and tradition to love everything that has to do with philly as you can see by my enormous chest tattoo of gritty so that i definitely have so that's kind of like high it's almost like it's Anne rice quality writing it's very good writing and it's very enjoyable and it's kind of like you read it it's action-packed and there's adventures and there's romance but it's not a gritty it's not a clive barker vampire sure I mean, I didn't think when you by the time you said red wine and dark chocolate, I was like, okay, I understand. Yeah, and it's she creates this sort of world of like the All Souls world where these characters live and their predilections and all these different things, and the fans are so enthralled by this world. I mean, at this conference, they had like a geneticist who was talking about like the possibility of passing. Um, vampire genes and how how like a witch and a vampire could make a baby and the skills that they would have. So they're super into this sort of world that she creates. So, and I think the problem with this book is she knows her fans and she knows the questions that they will have. So the book is sort of bloated with explanations for all the things that could possibly come up for questions they could have. So there's a lot of information about like the genetic makeup of the two children and the way that they behave and the things that they have. Oh, and then there's a griffin. Oh, okay. So one of them manifests a griffin, so now we have a griffin in the book too, so. So it's very it's a very loyal fan base and but it's it's interesting. I mean, I like the book. I I would have read it even if I had not met her. Sure. Cuz I had read the first book, the first three books before that. Okay. But it's almost like a fantasy kind of story that you can... But to her, she knows her market. She's a middle-aged woman, and she knows what middle-aged women like. Sure. And it's Dark chocolate and red wine. And then it's sort of like... It does sort it's of have this... Heart. Almost this Regency-style romance where it's very proper, and there's no like... Like Anne Rice would have like people having sex behind a dumpster. She has, like, you have to go to Elizabethan times and create this whole culture. And then you have, like, a romance in the Elizabethan times. Yeah, well, it sounds to me like the difference is, like, Anne Rice was super into hair metal. 
Whereas it seems like Deborah Harkness was like a theater geek, maybe? I think so. And then there's a huge component about like yoga and like... Wait, really? Yeah, it's... <laughs> okay. I mean, we could do a whole podcast just on this. I mean, I could talk endlessly about it, but but that's what I was reading, so... Okay. So that was fun. So, in, in speaking of like a Philadelphia connection, another book that I had just gotten from the library and I'm going to be starting, which feeds sort of a couple different elements of things that I'm interested in. So, this book is The Hellfire Club by Jake Tapper, which is from 2018. The, the, the news guy? Yes. So... He's a, he's the news reporter on CNN. Yeah, and he was he was raised and had lived most of his life in Philadelphia, and he very much identifies as a Philadelphian, and he's very much loyal to being a Philadelphian. So he loves the Eagles and the Phillies, and if you watch him on his show, he always has these nods to Philadelphia. So he wrote this as his first nonfiction book. And it's set in the 1950s, and it's based on this sort of conspiracy of the Hellfire Club, which is this Harvard secret political society. It's his first fiction book. It's his first fiction book, that's right. We'll get into that. So it's set in 1954, and it's about McCarthyism and this sort of murder mystery that happens as a political thriller. So it sort of is like a celebrity fiction novel. It has a Philadelphia connection, and it's a first novel. And it also sort of has some kind of Dan Brownish elements of like, you know, the secret society. Yeah. Uh, I mean, Benjamin Franklin was in the Hellfire Club. Yes. But I think what we were talking about, I totally forgot my train of thought what I was talking about. I just started thinking about Jake Tapper and I just lost my, oh, his nonfiction books. So he wrote a book. He wrote a book about the 2000 presidential election called like Stealing the Election. He wrote a book about a group of Afghanistan veterans and their um, what happened to them during the war called The Outpost, which is being made into a movie with a lot of male action stars. Is John Krasinski going to be in it? Because it seems like he's legally obligated to be in every one of these movies. I, I probably... And then my favorite, which I think you would be most excited about, is he wrote a biography of Jesse Ventura called Body Slam, which is partly about his wrestling career and partly about his rise to becoming the governor. He apparently is both a wrestling and a political historian. He's interested in both of those things. I mean, I guess that makes sense. If you were interested in politics and wrestling, or even pop culture in general, then... It makes sense that you would write a thing about Jesse Ventura, but that is weird. But honestly, I didn't really know. I don't watch a lot of television news. I get most of my news in the textual format. So, like, I didn't really know that he was, like, from Philadelphia and was, like, attached to it. But it kind of makes sense because Philly is historically a big-time wrestling town. Philly loves its wrestling. Right. So I could see... Like, that kind of makes sense now. It's like, oh, okay, I get it. He's, he likes wrestling. And he likes politics. So the person who makes the most... Like, you're either you're going to write a book about Jesse Ventura or you're going to write a book about Bob Backlund's weird failed Senate run. Yeah, and I think this sort of Jesse Ventura story hit that sweet spot of wrestling and political commentary. I think that's his main area. I haven't started the novel yet, but I'm interested to read it. Because I I I like these sort of... I'm curious about these sort of celebrity novels and I'm very curious about this 
sort of trend in publishing to like highlight like non highlight fiction novels by like celebrities. So, cause I know I talked about like Christian Ritter and her novel. And so I think it's kind of interesting. I look for these stories and I'm kind of like, I'm, I'm interested to read this, not because I'm interested in like the Hellfire Club or about McCarthyism political intrigue, but just like, how does like a person whose main career is not being a writer writes a novel like this? I think it's a different thing when it's somebody who's like a journalist, though, than it is when it's like an actor or a musician. Well, I think it's interesting because we were just talking about Garcia Marquez. He started as a journalist and he was a political journalist and then he moved into fiction. I mean, a lot of, a lot of writers, a lot of fiction writers, uh, have journalism backgrounds. I mean, not like, it's not like most of them, but there's, there's a fair amount of people that move from journalism into fiction. I think for a lot of people, it's like, uh, how do you get paid for writing? Oh, you do journalism. And then you do journalism. You're like, well, this is the worst thing in the world. Let's try our hand at fiction. Yeah. But I think it's, and Probably with both of them, the work that they do, their nonfiction work, is influencing their fictional sure. takes on things. Like this novel, The Hellfire Club, is obviously based on a political intrigue. I'm sure it'll be better than all of those books that Bill O'Reilly wrote, or the Glenn Beck ones. See, I have no interest, and I will not even even any base desire to indulge in those types of novels. And I, and I had to go back to this timed convert thing... The only reason why I blazed through that is because that was my reward for finishing Cytine. Oh, so you have finished Cytine. Yes, I did. And I have to say that was... Not that it was difficult to read, but it was the most boring of all the books I read off of the Hugo Awards. And I'm talking about, like, even the Mars trilogy. Mm Mm-hmm. I mean, I would rather read three environmental science fiction novels in a row and then reread Cytine. It was so boring. And I was upset because I really liked Down Below Station, which had more of an action. The plot was so slow and slow. And the premise was almost like a girl clone is involved in a political intrigue. It was just so boring. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it happens. There's some boring sci-fi out there. I mean, I think a lot of people, when I told them I was reading this book and I said how boring it was, they were like, were you really surprised? It's like a 700-page military fiction, science fiction novel that takes place, you know, in literally one room. <laughs> yeah, I, I can say, though, that I've never read Side Team, but I did read Down Below Station. I've read some of her other stuff. Her other stuff is, is better. I don't understand. I honestly don't understand why this was awarded the Hugo Award. I don't understand it. Well, what else? Right, let's let's do a little. Let's do a little uh, digging. I want to look at what else was nominated that year to see what it was up against. Because maybe, maybe it was just a really dry year, and it was like this is a big, impressive, like work. Like it's long. You just put a lot of work and thought into it. So maybe. Do you remember which year it was? I guess I could just look for her name. But it just, I just thought, like, because it was supposed to be, and it almost really has nothing to do with Psy Team. Wait, what? It really doesn't have anything to do with the world that she creates in Down Below Station, which kind of confused me. 
So the other ones that were nominated, it was 1989. The other ones that were nominated were Red Prophet by Orson Scott Card. So good thing that didn't win. He's a sack of shit. Uh, Falling Free by Lois McMaster Bujold or Buhold. I don't actually know how to say Well, maybe they've already given her 20 of them, so they didn't want to give her any more. Islands in the Net by Bruce Sterling and Mona Lisa Overdrive by William Gibson. Oh, see that? Now, that's just a slap in the face. I could have been reading that. Yeah. But instead I read this. Mona, I don't remember. I know I've read all of those sprawl books, which, you know, it's Neuromancer, Count Zero, and Mona Lisa Overdrive. I don't. I think I'm the one I maybe remember the least of. Yeah, I think so. So this book has to do with like sort of artificial, not artificial intelligence, but just... Um, artificial life? Yes, cloning and sort of, I don't know, I just... Oh, it's okay. A book can be boring and you can not like a book. It's fine. But I felt like... I don't know. I felt like just reading her other novel and then hearing more about her other work that this is just a really low representation of like the quality of her writing. And I feel like it's kind of disappointing that like winning a Hugo Award for this sort of sprawling, long, low action sort of novel. I felt like I was reading it. I literally felt like it was taking place in real time. I felt like every page that I read was an entire day long. And it was like, I couldn't, I couldn't even, usually I can find something about a book that's like, okay, well, let me see what happens to this character. Or I kind of get invested in some plot point. Every one of the characters was sort of boring and whiny. And the plot points of this sort of political intrigue about who's going to take over this tape company where they make these educational tapes to program people and I was kind of like there was really no there wasn't any action which is surprising for a sci-fi novel there's usually like some kind of action and you didn't really feel emotionally connected to any of the people because they all felt like they were sort of like bland and generic like okay you're a you know you're a clone of a famous scientist you know like okay like there really wasn't any, like, anything to just sort of draw you in. Okay. We don't, um, we've, we've already talked twice. This is the second time we've talked about how boring Saitin is. Oh, is it? Yeah. See, we it was t- so boring, I couldn't even remember that I had talked about it before. Yeah, we talked about it, we talked about it on the Hellraiser episode. I think people get the idea. It's very boring. Don't read it. Read something else by C.J. Cherry or read Mona Lisa Overdrive. Read Down Below Station. That's what I would recommend. But I think the thing, whenever I hear people talking about like trying to read the whole Hugo list, the one that they always call out for being the like, why the fuck did this win is uh, They'd Rather Be Right. Which is the one yeah. about the, the computer. What is it called? Missy? Mui? Right. That's right. But you know what? That one, I kind of was like, why did this win? But it read to me like a noir story. Okay. You know, like they had created this computer and they had the psychic and they were on the run and there was this sort of like, they were hiding. Bossy. That's the name of the computer. Right. And I, I, I kind of understood like, okay, that might be sort of a proto-technology thriller. Like, that's the way I saw that. And I didn't even really mind that. Okay. So. But I'm kind of like, some of the stuff is kind of on the list. A lot of what's on the list is a really good example of science fiction. Sure. And I think, like, but, like, as you get, there are some missteps. And I think this is just one of the missteps. 
No offense to C.J. Cherry, because I'm sure she's a, a very fine writer, but... Okay, well... So what's next up? Uh, next up, we're doing uh, Sandman Volume 5. Five, Yes, Volume 5, so we're, we'll be halfway through Sandman by then. So it's called A Game of You, from 1991 to 1992. It's issues 32 to 37... And Barbie is back. Yes, Barbie is back. Martin Tenbones is back. Uh, yeah. And then there's a character who's revealed becomes a very important plot point in the later um, events that happen to Morpheus and the Endless. Yeah, and the... Thess- uh, Thessaly? Yeah, Thessaly. Thessaly. Uh, and the art is by Sean McManus, Colleen Duran... And Brian Talbot. And I all the colors are by Daniel Vazo. And I think this is one where it's pretty heavy in pushing the overarching plot point. So we're it, it, we're still in that cluster of volumes that is pushing the plot point along. We're also, the one after this volume six is another interlude. Yeah, it's more ser- uh, volume, but this one. Heavily pushes the plot point. Yeah, this is also pulling us back to the actual, like, original premise of the comic. This is another story that is about dreams. Right. And not necessarily about the broader mythology in the way that Season of Mists was. Yes. All right. So, I guess we're done, right? I think so. Do you have anything else to add? No, I do not. All right, then. Let's wrap it up. Spoiler alert. Stay tuned. Mm -hmm.